everybody. Uh, welcome to another live session of Radio Finance, uh, which is broadcast to the Asian Banker, Wealth and Society, and a number of other platforms around the world. My name is Emmanuel Daniel. I'm the founder of the Asian Banker. I'm here in Beijing, and I'm very happy today to have as my guest, uh, Robert Koopman, the chief economist of the World Trade Organization, uh, and who joins me from Geneva. Thank you for joining us, Bob. Thank you, Emmanuel. Happy to be here. Uh, there's nothing like talking to an economist who sees the hard numbers and follows uh, the flow of global trade and, um, and the economies of all of the different countries from substance uh, rather than uh, from, you know, a lot of the uh, media-driven, um, you know, popular um, issues that we face today. Um, and I also noticed you have a new boss. Uh, it's, it's been wonderful to see uh, Dr. Nozi. Uh, taking over as the Director General of uh, the WTO. Uh, she did a very credible, um, you know, first press conference uh, in February, I, I believe, uh, setting out her priorities, which I guess will be your priorities as well. Uh, you could start by, you know, um, just giving us a sense of uh, the priorities that you have in front of you uh, as the Chief Economist. In And the conversation that we want to have really is one of... Um, trying to construct in our own mind how the agendas have uh, evolved for the WTO uh, and for global trade, given so much that's happening around the world today. It is very nice uh, to have our new boss on site. Um, she has hit the ground running. She is a force of nature. Um, and she brings a different perspective than our previous boss, uh, Roberto Acevedo. Uh, who is a former ambassador and really knew the ins and outs of the day-to-day -day committee meetings here at the WTO. Dr. Ngozi brings a different perspective. She's a former finance minister, former high-level World Bank official. Um, and I guess you could say she has a different Rolodex than uh, Mr. Azevedo did. Um, so when she picks up the phone and makes calls, it's a, it's a different kind of uh, connection that she makes. And um, she has a broad view of what she'd like for the WTO. Um, she has to see what members will agree to. That's the big challenge for any director general is we're member led. Um, but I do think she's trying to uh, bring a different perspective, different level, and try to get members to sort of break a gridlock that's been, uh, been here for a few years and see if she can disrupt things a bit. Right. In fact, one of the first gridlocks is the conflict resolution mechanism at the WTO. Um, we will not we will not go into that as much, uh, rather than the, on the realities of the global uh, trade and, and and the global economy. Um, one of the interesting things that you said um, in in a in a recent comment that you made was that you know the U.S. China trade war is not as deterministic uh, of what's happening in trade. Uh, as uh, the pandemic um, and as other uh, issues. And I think let's uh, use this conversation to put that in perspective. It is interesting. There's definitely serious trade conflict between those two large nations. Don't, don't forget that the U.S. also has trade tensions with uh, the European Union. And in some ways, those are, are deeper and more structural. But um, what we've seen from global trade uh, it's quite an interesting story. If you look at from 1990 to 2005, global trade was growing more than twice as fast as global GDP. Um, since the 2008-2009 financial crisis, trade's grown much slower, about one to one. Um, you add the trade conflict in there with US and China, it hasn't really moved the dial. It stayed at about one to one it created a lot of trade diversion. So um, rather than a, you know, so much bilateral trade between the US and China, um, China looked to offshore production and assembly. Uh, it was already doing that prior to the trade conflict. Uh, so it's provided an opportunity for many other countries to start joining global value chains and exporting. Now it's cost both countries, okay? So there are losses as a result of it, but global trade has not been that adversely affected. So the system has been holding, even though we have this bilateral conflict. Now, what's interesting there is that I looked up a piece of data which said that, uh, you know, there are about 580 bilateral, multilateral agreements, um, you know, in place around the world. And the, and the big ones are getting bigger, right? So China has one uh, with the rest of Southeast Asia, RESAP, uh, and then another one coming up with Japan and Korea. 
Um, and I think there's a capital uh, sharing agreement with the EU at the moment, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and NAFTA has seemed to be, seemed to have been um, reconfigured somewhat. Um, how do you, how would you put what's happening on the bilateral multilateral front uh, to a, a, a GATT equivalent, um, sure. you know, a generalized front. One way to think about the regional trade agreements or preferential trade arrangements um, and investment agreements is uh, they have a lot of the WTO DNA in them. So the WTO is the foundation from which those agreements typically then go uh, WTO plus. In other words, the commitments will be deeper than what they've made at the multilateral level. And sometimes they go beyond. It's a new issue that they've introduced or new issues that they brought into that agreement. We think that's very useful for the WTO because it shows where members have um, uh, updated interests, economic interests and in where they would like to advance things. Um, and that's a lesson for multilateral negotiations. It shows areas where perhaps they might wanna pursue deeper discussions here. The challenge has been getting those deeper discussions to actually occur here in Geneva. Um, but keep in mind, over 80% of global trade, merchandise trade occurs at WTO tariffs. And 50 percentage points of global trade is WTO zero tariffs. And the other 30% is WTO MFN tariffs. So those preferential trade arrangements don't affect uh, that much of global trade, right? At most 20% of global trade. Um, now that can be important for certain countries and certain sectors, but um, overall you see that the WTO foundation is still pretty strong. How much of that is as a result of the lack of a um, conflict resolution mechanism at WTO? And how much of that also is, uh, a shifting dynamics from manufactured goods to services to intangibles. The breakdown of the appellate body here at the WTO, um, I don't think at this point is very visible in global trade statistics or even global trade relations. Um, I think it has longer term implications, particularly in those areas where members have existing WTO commitments. Despite the fact that there isn't the appellate body, members are still bringing cases and they're still the first stage of disputes that's continuing where there's a lot of uh, opportunity for members to try to resolve their conflicts at that first stage or even informally. We have lots of mechanisms for informal uh, resolution. Now, the bigger changes, the digitization of global trade, the servicification of global trade, um, that's really having a transformational effect. And it's an area in services, we have something called the GATS, um, which is the services related element of the GATT, which is very important and very useful. But there are certain areas around digital cross-border data flows, privacy, e-commerce, those kinds of things, where we don't have specific commitments. And members have started a, a group effort we call them joint statement initiatives. This is on e-commerce, the e-commerce JSI, joint statement initiative, where they're trying to see if they can come to uh, agreement on a set of rules to help take this forward. Um, that's not all members. That's a group of members, like-minded members, which is how the GATT used to work. The predecessor to the WTO was much more like-minded countries advancing negotiations in certain sectors. Some of the members coming together, uh, starting to put on the table what's important to them for e-commerce um, and, uh, and, and how that's going to be shaping up. What's shaping up, do you think, uh, on the e-commerce front? Uh, taxation, KYC, um, you know, uh, borders, uh, uh, you know, what, what's shaping up on that front? Privacy and security are two very important elements here and getting a common understanding of how uh, different regulatory approaches might be coherent in that area. And there are three different views of this. There's the China view, there's the European view, and then there's the US view. So these are uh, uh, sort of centers of philosophy of approaches and every each one of those centers is trying to get more and more countries to join uh, their particular perspective. And that makes it a challenge to come together 
and reach some sort of coherent approach to these, these challenges of privacy and security. The China view uh, is being predicated by what, by what China is doing domestically as well. I think there's right. a, a greater concentration of the use of data back into state-owned platforms uh, rather than the private sector platforms. Uh, and then there's a, a, a centralization, as it were. Uh, maybe a form of centralization is taking place in the US. We don't know yet. Uh, but there's a desire to at least break down this, the huge silos of the individual data platforms that exist. Uh, and then the Europeans. How would you characterize um, you know, uh, what each of these different philosophies are essentially about? China sees um, uh, privacy and security as, as very, very integrated, but it's a different kind of privacy. And it almost goes sort of to the cultural, more communal approach uh, that many Asian countries have compared to sort of the individualistic approach of countries like the United States. Um, so they see this um, merger of privacy and security particularly security around the state. Um, but I think many Chinese citizens uh, feel like, um, you know, they, they want somebody who's going to uh, filter out fake news. Um, at least this is the kinds of conversations I've had around dinner tables in China. Um, you know, my, my sister and my mother in the countryside don't, don't really know how to distinguish between real news and fake news. Um, and so they see the state as playing, as many Chinese citizens see the state as playing this protective role. Um, and, you know, and I think there's a big philosophical difference in the US where many, many citizens see fake news, mainstream media, you see all these uh, debates. Um, but I think the general philosophy is it's up to the individual to decide what's real and what isn't to them. Um, and then privacy is interesting. In, in the United States, um, when it comes to government collecting data, um, the privacy standards are very, very strict, um, whether it's commercial data or individual data, right? Um, and what's happened is we've had this big explosion of the private sector doing a better job in many respects of collecting data than the government. You know, so if you were in the 1970s, uh, 1980s, you know, the best data available about what was happening in the global economy came from you know, the US central statistical organizations. And you know, they might have credit agencies and things like that that provided good information about individuals. But now firms like Amazon and Apple have much better, or Google have much better data uh, than the government does about individual behavior. Um, and that, that's interesting. That kind of grew up in a vacuum around data rules and things like that. And I think it's only starting to become clear to individuals that, geez, maybe, maybe we need to have some rules around this. What you just said about individualism in the US and, and data and privacy and protection, uh, Naum Chomsky has a description of the WTO as a protector of uh, big business and the state, uh, as opposed to the individual. Um, and we're now getting into a world for a number of reasons, uh, including the pandemic, where people are beginning to work from home, um, you know, and, and choosing, you know, how and where, and, you know, why they would want to trade or, or buy services. Um, and yet, um, states uh, are, um, you know, are claiming the right to be able to dictate that process. Um, you know, and somewhere in that picture are, are big businesses as they are evolving today. I mean, you, big businesses ten years ago would be an IBM or a or a GE, um, and um, and big businesses today would be a you know a Google or a Baidu. This move towards individualism. Do you see? Um, something about protecting the common man um, that uh, should be a, a, a trade objective in, in the long run. President Biden, for example, said that, you know, there should be a global taxation regime now, uh, especially with, uh, with, with uh, e-commerce. Um, so will the WTO now be a platform for implementing that process by which the state doesn't lose out 
on income, on tax, proceeds of, of, of global trade in a, in a digital world? Well, you know, most of those uh, negotiations are happening at the OECD down in Paris, um, which is much smaller and more like-minded membership um, than uh, the WTO. We have 164 members. Um, but uh, there are clear implications for global trade. We see um, tax arbitrage and trade data around intellectual property, where, com- where companies locate their intellectual property, where they allocate profits and things like that. And it distorts trade flows. Is it a major distortion of trade flows? In some sectors, I would say so. Um, has it influenced the uh, location of production of goods? I would say so, but a lot of that also has to do with uh, all of these RTAs and bilateral investment treaties and uh, the firming up of property rights globally in many countries. Um, but I, I do think, going back to this sort of moral philosophy question you have, is the WTO about big business um, and the state? Um, the WTO is about rules, rules for global commerce. And many of those rules are basic principles, such as non-discrimination, most favored nation. You can't discriminate against a foreign company compared to a domestic company. You can't discriminate across different foreign companies under WTO rules. You have to treat everybody the same. Um, That applies whether you're a big business or a small business. Now, the WTO, one, one thing we've seen with all the technological change and integration that falling transportation costs and IT costs have brought about along with all the rules and regulations ensuring the relative free flow of capital and property rights around that capital, is that trade has now gone from being maybe a minor factor in labor markets to a bigger one. Not the driving factor in in labor markets, but a bigger one than it was, say, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, But at the same time, you've got uh, automation, digitization, technological change having big impacts on labor markets. And people are having a hard time, workers, households are having a hard time sorting out, is this a trade effect? I saw that factory close down. I heard it move to Mexico um, and I've lost my job. While unemployment in the US has been relatively low for a very long time, except in economic downturns, which have very little to do with trade. So there's been relative full employment but there's been unequal returns in the labor market where those who have the skills, the appropriate skills have done relatively well. And those who don't have the right skills for the modern economy have not done well at all. And then the question is, should the state help with that? And what's the role of trade versus technology versus changing consumer preferences? And I think we at the WTO in the past few years, we put out a number of research pieces basically saying you need to have coherence between your trade policies and your domestic policies. And those countries that have better coherence between those, we could call those domestic policies, safety net policies, they could be education policies, infrastructure investment policies. Um, Those countries that have paid attention to that and adapted their domestic policies to these uh, big changing global forces I think have done relatively well, and you see much less of this populism um, rising up. Those countries that haven't done well, I would say the US is one of those that hasn't done that well in terms of adapting its domestic policy environment to the the changing technology and global environment, now is realizing that they do need to make those kinds of changes. To sum up, the WTO isn't just about big business and, and governments, okay? It is about um, people and it's about opportunity, but it's not clear that we've got the right kind of balance in each of the member countries or that member countries have brought the right kinds of discussions here at the WTO. And so I think this has been a shock and a learning event for um, both the members um, here in Geneva, but also back home in their capitals. You're putting into place the three dimensions that have to work with each other, capital, labor, um, and trade. Uh, and then you also have technology, uh, which is uh, transforming everything. But when I look at your numbers in terms of uh, trade in services or trade in labor, 
Um, I, I was quite surprised to see that construction was at the very top, followed by financial services, and, and further down is ICT and um, you know, uh, transport and all the stuff that we normally associated with labor, uh, tourism, construction and finance. Uh, those are, you know, odd bedfellows. So, you know, one is hard services, the other is soft services. Right. Uh, and, the, and the countries that do well in construction uh, or other need construction, cheaper construction labor uh, are sometimes quite different from the countries that are uh, essentially financial centers. Um, just, just talk me through a little bit on, on um, trade in services and, and labor uh, and how that's um, uh, shaping up, especially, uh, you know, in a post-COVID world. Increasingly, um, what we see in services trade is cross-border services trade, digitalization of services trade. Um, so those kind of service activities that can be digitalized um, are increasingly being traded across border. So you'll have concentrated uh, production sites that are delivering in a very dispersed geographic area. That can be, by the way, domestically or cross-border. Okay? So you'll see financial services concentrated in certain cities in a country delivering services across a broad geographic area, and increasingly that's happening uh, globally. Things like construction, you've got to be there. There are back office elements and design coordination of the supply chains for delivery, but you have to have boots on the ground in a sense in that area. The construction services are supported by digital technology in terms of the back office stuff, but you still got to have plenty of people on the ground. In areas like financial services, what we're seeing is less and less boots on the ground. So less and less affiliates being formed. Um, in other countries because companies are realizing we don't need to create an office there. We can provide this digitally. And those kinds of services that can benefit from that um, are, are seeing their trade costs fall. Um, the physical trade costs, the cost of moving bytes across borders falling significantly and the organizational structure of cloud computing, but also the regulatory environment that's facilitated this. Um, that's also created challenges in taxation when it comes to things like e-commerce. And, and that's the debate right now, largely being uh, pursued at uh, the OECD, but it has implications for the WTO because of how the WTO agreements treat taxation. Is it direct taxation, indirect taxation? It gets, it gets very, very complicated. We don't know where that's going to go. We are following it. Um, we're trying to make sure that our members are informed about that debate. I'm a bit sympathetic that governments have to fund infrastructure. They have to fund social programs. And the more companies are essentially able to avoid that because of these new technological or legal arrangements, um, that undermines the foundational support that business operates on, which is well-functioning government, well-functioning infrastructure, whether it's soft infrastructure, so it's law, courts of law, or hard infrastructure like rail, ports, and uh, road transport. Those things have to get paid for. Let's uh, pin down some of the broad areas that we can cover in, in a conversation like this into you know, some of the concrete things that are happening around the world right now. So the pandemic, right? Uh, and yeah. trade flows and manufacturing, supply chains, and sub subsidy. What are some of the the topics that are top topmost in your head uh, uh, on as a result of the pandemic, vaccine, um, you know, distribution uh, is something that um, you know Dr. Nozi has uh, has indicated as being very important uh, and making it available, uh, you know, right across uh, all of the developing as much as yeah. the developed countries. Uh, and related to that would be manufacturing licenses, would be uh, subsidies and stuff like that. So um, just talk us through about some of the key issues around the pandemic. The pandemic had big impacts on uh, global GDP, global trade, much more aggressive fiscal and monetary policy to address this pandemic compared to say the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009. We've seen $16 trillion of fiscal support and the equivalent of $10 trillion in liquidity monetary support. Massive, massive support um, for this global crisis. That has helped ensure that trade performed not as bad as in the great financial crisis. So 
the ratio of trade decline to GDP decline in um, the great financial crisis was six. Trade declined six times more than GDP. In this um, pandemic crisis, the great lockdown, as it's being called, we've seen trade only decline by twice as much as GDP. So that's pretty robust. That's, you know, trade's done well. Trade in medical goods, done well. Trade in medical goods increased. Last year, trade, merchandise trade in volume terms declined by 5.3%. Medical trade uh, increased by 16%, and some goods much higher than that. So, uh, and trade in critical food security related products has been very stable, no decline whatsoever. So trades really played a very, very helpful role here. Now, we are worried that if we can't get the virus under control, that the recovery will be slower than it otherwise would have been, right? So we've done reasonably well in getting through the crisis. Then moving forward, will we have a fast recovery or slow recovery? And that has to do with whether or not we're going to be able to get the virus under control and vaccinations are going to be very critical in that. Vaccination production is highly concentrated. It's US, Europe, India, China. We see concentrated production, but to produce in those concentrated areas, those countries are importing from many other countries. So while the actual production of vaccines is concentrated, the, the supplies, the components, the parts, all that stuff is very widely dispersed. Trade is playing a critical role in helping with the production of vaccines. And then it's gonna play a very critical role in the delivery of vaccines to other countries. Um, and uh, we're having a, a program where we're having vaccine producers, NGOs, um, other interested parties coming in and telling us where do they see problems in the supply chains and where might there be a trade policy issue, where might there be an infrastructure issue, where might there be some other behind the border regulatory issue that's, that might slow the distribution of vaccines. A country like the US can produce more than 10 times the amount of vaccines they need for the domestic population. So it'll have a big exportable surplus. India can produce um, about what it needs in, an, in a year for its domestic population if you think of two shots per person. Um, but once its population is taken care of, and if it can scale up production even more, it'll have a big exportable surplus. Then you run into the political economy thing. When do we, do we take care of our domestic population or do we do what the medical uh, professionals say, which is take care of global elderly, infirm first, and then bring it down? Um, that's a very difficult political economy question for any government. We don't have very good information. I just gave you some data on production capability, right? Um, but then we don't necessarily know where inventories are. We don't necessarily know um, um, where the supply chain constraints are. So governments are often making decisions based on not very well put together databases. Um, and so one of the things we hope to be able to do out of this is get a coalition of the private sector and uh, international organizations and governments to improve our data collection. If you look at the trade data, we use something called the harmonized tariff system, the HS system. There is one tariff line at the six digit for vaccines for human use, right? That's mumps, measles. I mean, you name all the different kinds of things for which there might be vaccines, there's one tariff line. After that, we don't know um, how much of that's for COVID-19. And so we need to improve the trade data so that we know how much trade is going on in different kinds of vaccines. And with the big increase in COVID-19, what's happening to the production and trade of other kinds of vaccines and might there be knock-on effects there? Um, and then what are inventories um, and what is happening to the production? Is it being consumed domestically or traded? So we need to do a better job of just getting our head around core data in this area so that better informed business and uh, poli government policy decisions can be made. How much of that is giving the WTO an opportunity 
to you know, even deal with some of the issues that have been long-standing, like intellectual property tax, um, you know, taxation of uh, goods and services um, mm-hmm. that that could be dealt with. Many members uh, have put forward proposals to liberalize trade and health-related goods and to set up early warning mechanisms and a system to help us deal with future pandemics, including this one. Um, on intellectual properties, there's a big debate. Some members have said we need to have uh, something called the TRIPS waiver, which waives the uh, intellectual property rights um, and would allow uh, countries to start producing vaccines on their own. The challenge with that, and, and it's a reasonable proposal, it's, it's an option, Countries can do it anyway. They can invoke uh, a, a critical need and go ahead and do that. But what that allows you to do is to, you know, to take the recipe. So imagine you're going to prepare a meal and you get a list of ingredients. And that's all you get. Know what steps for mixing the ingredients. That's know-how. Okay. So often in a recipe, there's a lot of know-how. When it comes to vaccines, the know-how is... More, almost more important than the recipe. So the TRIPS waiver lets you look at the recipe, then you have to figure out how to produce it. And then do you have everything in terms of know-how and equipment to do that production? Now, I think what Dr. Ngozi would like to see is more distribution of that, um, both the recipe and the know-how, so that we don't run into such concentrated production capabilities, right? Um, but uh, that's something that governments have to come together and decide. We've seen this in something called GAVI, the Global Alliance on Vaccines, um, where in 2001, they had, there were about five manufacturing plants that, where they could procure vaccines, not COVID vaccines, because COVID wasn't an issue back in 2001. And by 2014, there were 11. They went from five to like 11 different vaccine production sites where they could contract to get the kinds of vaccines. Do we need a a response like that where we diversify the potential sourcing for COVID uh, vaccines going forward? I think that's the kind of discussion she wants to have. But in the short term, what we've got to do is make sure that what can be produced is produced, so we don't run into supply chain bottlenecks. And what is produced gets distributed efficiently and well um, globally, uh, domestically and globally. And where are there trade-related policies or um, uh, infrastructure challenges um, or even behind the border regulatory challenges that are clogging up the system and preventing that from operating as efficiently as possible? So the short-term And then there's long-term. I think she describes this as we need to walk and chew gum at the same time. Okay. (laughs) Um, So we need to be thinking, you know, we need to do stuff right now, but we also need to have a destination. India had had not taken part in uh, a regional trade agreement called RESAP, uh, you know, in in this part of the world, because one of the issues that they had was exporting medicines to China. And, and China basically, you know, wants to be able to produce its own medicines. Uh, and I was wondering if uh, a, a, an issue like a vaccine uh, export economy um, would, um, you know, broker again the opportunity to, for these countries to talk to each other. I do think they're going to end up talking to each other. And I do think that there needs to be a meeting of the minds. It, you know, can't just be... Um, health ministers doing this, right? It also has to be trade ministers. It has to be commerce ministers, domestic commerce ministers. And there has to be this um, uh, alignment of policies across domestic and international so that we come up with an efficient solution that deals with the short-term challenges, but improves our long-term outcome. And um, I think, you know, uh, countries have different views here. Uh, I think China uh, is recognizing that because of the concentration of production in China, which from uh, a, a, a fundamental economic perspective, you've got sort of Smith, Smithian, Adam Smith efficiency, specialization, David Ricardo, countries should specialize in different kinds of things. I'm a trade economist, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but um, I think firms are starting to realize that there's this risk versus efficiency trade-off. And it isn't just international trade. If you get a hurricane or 
a storm in Texas that shuts down a big state that's got a lot of different kinds of production capabilities that provide domestic parts and components to U.S. production, that's as disruptive as an ever given getting stuck in, in the um, Suez Canal or uh, China's city that produces all the world's buttons going into a health lockdown. Um, I think firms are starting to realize we need to have diversified production, diversified sourcing. That doesn't necessarily mean re-onshore. doesn't mean domestic. Okay, it may mean some more domestic. It may. One of the interesting things I heard about in the pandemic was many manufacturing firms in the upper Midwest in the U.S. using 3D printing prototypes machines, where they would prototype a design and then they would outsource for scale to Asia. They ended up because of supply chain disruptions using those prototype machines on an interim, short-term basis to produce the parts and components they needed to keep at some level of manufacturing going on. I think you'll see a lot of that kind of flexibility around inventories, flexible production processes, diversified um, sourcing globally, but you're not gonna get rid of that, um, those efficiencies, Adam Smith and David Ricardo, but risks are being uh, increasingly noticed by, um, by businesses. How much of the impact agenda, the UN SDG goals, uh, are beginning to creep into the WTO agenda today? Well, um, a lot, actually, and it's been driven by members. Uh, members want to talk about environment. They want to talk about sustainability. Um, you know, we have a couple of initiatives forming. I mentioned these JSI, Joint Statement Initiatives. So there's one forming around climate change. Uh, there's one around plastics and plastic pollution. Who's driving the one about, around climate change? Because I'm very curious now that the U.S. is back. Well, it's a group of countries that are, are, are pushing it. You know, you see Europe, um, I believe Canada. There's a lot of countries that are very interested in, in climate and what, what we can do. And then that gets to things like carbon border adjustment mechanisms, uh, you know, carbon taxes. So it'll be a very interesting discussion. I, those issues are definitely coming in to the WTO. We have an ongoing negotiation around fisheries and uh, global fisheries and how can we um, sort of make them more sustainable and reduce uh, some of the distorting policies that are resulting or driving global overfishing. Um, but these are all very naughty problems, right? Naughty in the sense of, you know, difficult, I mean, Gordian, hot kinds of problems <laughs> uh, in that, um, you know, some countries basically say, well, we haven't had the opportunity to exploit fishing yet. We should have that opportunity. Um, and, you know, the countries that have been big global fishers should let us go ahead and do it. Um, when in reality, everybody has to pay a price and it's difficult figuring out who's how to share that burden. After so many years, it's interesting that uh, that the WTO hasn't come up with a narrower specification of uh, shared resources, uh, you know, like fisheries that uh, both the developing countries and the, and the ones which had overfished in the past uh, would, would be able to share. Um, but how much of what you are putting in place uh, in terms of, uh, you know, negotiation parameters, um, you know, re reflect uh, the Paris Accord, for example, and the commitments that the countries have made to the Paris Accord. That's um, forefront in many members' minds. Also, okay. it's member-driven. It's member-driven. This driven. is all member-driven. So not, we, as a secretariat, yeah. we help members with their negotiations. We you know, give them uh, facts, expert analysis, those kinds of things. We synthesize complex issues for them, um, but we don't take sides. Um, and members have to decide where they want the agenda to go. Um, so I, that's a very important thing to understand. When there's criticism of the WTO not working, um, it usually means that members are not doing their part. Given the, the job that you need to do, um, uh, how, how does blockchain help uh, you know, global trade? Um, maybe a comment from you on that front. And sure, what we the have WTO some, is doing on that? We have an agreement here, one of the last big agreements that the WTO uh, came up with, uh, that was in Bali, uh, trade facilitation agreement, which is a 
about members trying to find ways to make border crossings more efficient um, and for goods and services. And blockchain is one of those technologies, distributed ledger technologies that could help. It could help with trade finance in terms of know your customer. It could help with uh, reducing the paperwork burdens. We find in many countries, the number of pieces of paper and stamps one has to have is very, very burdensome and costly and it takes a lot of time to do. And so anything that like distributed ledger technology can make that more efficient, smooth that, have one package of electronic documents that follows um, the goods across borders, we think that'll shave a lot off global trade costs and could be a very, very important contributor. And we are discussing those things here. There aren't negotiations around it, but members are very aware of it. One of my team, a woman, Emmanuel Gan, um, is our blockchain expert. She's written a couple of, uh, of uh, manuscripts on this. Um, and uh, the objective is to help guide the private sector through what they need to make this happen and then make sure governments are hearing from the private sector as to what kind of rules um, and obligations might make this more uh, an easier thing to roll out and get efficiency and coherence across the approaches. In fact, we, we are hearing stories of uh, agricultural blockchains from Kenya uh, being sourced out to Japan and Australia. Um, you know, on a very specific basis, right down to the seed that they want at, at which time of the mm-hmm. year and all that. So, yeah. so that that's uh, looking very good. And I, I just wondered how, to what extent it, it featured in the WTO's um, overall scheme of things. The Suez Canal, 12% of global trade, $9 billion a day. Uh, you know, what were you uh, working on when, when the ship uh, hit the side of the canal? I had a... Uh pretty strong reaction of this kind of stuff happens a lot. As in you're, you're wondering what will happen if something like this happens, right? So yeah, Well, it happens. happens a lot. It happens a lot. It's just not as usually as um, that kind of image in people's mind. So it was a very, very powerful image of what can go wrong in global supply chains, right? Um, but the impact will be lost in the overall data. Okay, Um, it just was not that big of a deal when you're talking, you know, twenty two trillion dollars worth of trade, nine billion dollars a day doesn't go that far. There are bigger knock on effects. And certainly some companies, some countries are more adversely affected than others. Um, But as I mentioned, you get winter storms in Texas, right? You get a typhoon in Asia that knocks out a paint paint plant. Um, You get a fire in a factory that uh, produces computer chips for cars. You know, those things happen every day. And firms have them in their risk evaluation matrix, okay? I, I, I think there is a concern around climate change that some of these events could be more frequent, and bigger, um, and if infrastructure degradation continues to occur, you could see more of these things happening. Um, but if governments are taking care of infrastructure, if they're taking care of the rules and regulations around global trade, um, and we find ways to mitigate climate change, I don't think you're going to see that chain that that risk element from supply chain disruptions like that going up very much. Things like global pandemics, that, that was a big concern, much bigger than the ever given. But, you know, during all of this time, China had been building this railroad link uh, into Europe. And yes. for a number of years, uh, they, they were highly subsidized, um, you know, and uh, even, in fact, uh, underutilized. Uh, do you see new trade routes uh, as a result of something like this that didn't exist before that suddenly becomes, um, you know, viable? Yes, it's very possible. Um, and, you know, I've, I've seen a number of presentations and been at conferences in China where uh, this gets a lot of attention and the special trains they run, you know, from All China. The way to to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't really know the economics of that. OK, um, it, it sounds reasonable. I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen any numbers on the kinds of subsidies that are being provided. Um, 
But if, if you're doing that, you're competing with other transportation mechanisms, right? So you're competing with uh, road freight, you're competing with air, you're competing with ocean freight. Um, you know, if, if we continue to get global warming, the Russians believe you, you kill, you'll be able to pass over the North Pole. Um, so I, I, I really don't know how that will sort out. I, I really don't. Um, yeah. One well, of the things about my profession is so many things are changing all the time. If you look at just one thing and you forget about what's going on in your peripheral vision, um, you, you end up being very surprised. At the same time, trade routes, uh, in fact, within Africa, uh, what I've discovered is um, when the payments platforms started evolving, the electronic payment platforms, there were payment trails between countries that have nothing to do with each other in the past. So between Tanzania and Nigeria, for example, which don't really have a trade route, but have a payment mm -hmm. route. And then you wonder uh, what was driving that, um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and between East Africa and West Africa and so on. So this whole notion of trade routes and how that might be shifting, um, I, I just wanted to explore, you know, uh, to what extent that might feature in your thinking. Well, obviously, we care about global trade. I think I've mentioned global value chains. Historically, I've done a lot of work on that. Um, one thing about global value chains is they're regional. And there is uh, an economic relationship called gravity, economic gravity, that basically says two large countries will trade a lot together um, and two large countries close together will trade a lot, a lot more together. Two small countries far apart won't trade very much, okay? And this is very, very real in the data. It's, it's there, right? And so supply chains tend to be regional and they tend to be concentrated around big economies, the United States and North America, Europe, uh, in Europe, China and uh, Japan, Korea and Asia. Um, but there's still a fair amount of these flows like you described the relationship in payments. There are still a, a fair amount of these flows that you know are the regions trading with each other. Um, but it's still hard to overcome that regional concentration of economic activity and, uh, and those relationships. So, um, we think that regions do trade with one another, they're going to continue to trade with one another, but the regional elements will, will always remain very, very strong simply because time and distance and size matters in economic relations. Um, and it's very, very present in the data. It seems hard to overcome. How would you distinguish between the EU and ASEAN? Both are regional, both have a trade component in there, um, but one is far more formalized than the other, um, you know, and uh, one is more loosely oriented. How would you characterize these two uh, trade blocks? EU is a deep agreement, right? So it's regulatory, it's very, very deep, touching on not, not just how much does it cost to move a good across a border, right? ASEAN is shallow. There's much less regulatory integration and coherence than in the EU. Um, and uh, there is some, so don't, don't think that I'm saying there's none. There is some, uh, but it's been much more about reducing tariffs and uh, that kind of coordination rather than trying to get that regulatory alignment and consistency. So deep agreements tend to go well beyond uh, things like goods trade and tariffs and gets very deep into the regulatory sphere. And as, a, as an organization, do you see greater harmonization in terms of regulation, um, you know, that it get deeper eventually, that, that it it's, becomes stable? Or, or so, is a shallow arrangement also good? Well, shallow is good. Yep, shallow is good. Uh, but keep in mind, when it, when it comes to moving, say, a, a typical good between two rich countries, it costs about 170% of the factory gate cost of production to deliver a good in another country. Um, between the US and EU, let's say it's 170% for a particular good. The tariff might be one or 2%, right? So the tariff is not necessarily a big driver there. Um, often it's a regulatory dif difference or the cost of transporting it from one place to the other, or just the cost of learning what does it take to sell a good in another market in terms of understanding demand uh, and consumer preferences, things like that. Um, 
So tariffs, reducing tariffs, these shallow agreements help. They reduce something that's a policy mechanism governments can touch on, but the regulatory stuff is hard. And you think about the US and EU, the EU often has something called the precautionary principle, okay? Um, unless it's proven safe, we're not gonna allow it to be done. In the United States, it's the opposite. It's unless it's proven bad, we're going to let it happen. That's an extreme characterization of a very complex thing, but I hope it, it captures yeah. the imagination. Um, and that, that philosophical difference is just very, very big. Um, and it drives a lot of the trade tensions between the US and the EU. Um, and then you've got China that's got a, a, a different view on that too, right? So um, yeah, it's a very interesting thing. So the in the WTO, we've done a very good job between advanced economies of reducing tariffs. Um, we've also done a reasonably good job around things like re regulatory coherence and mutual recognition, but there's much, much more to be done there. And that's where a lot of the trade costs remain. Yeah, rules-based, principles-based, and, 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 and vice versa. You just released uh, your report saying that uh, the WTO forecast for merchandise trade is up 8% in 2021 and 4% in 2022. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that, you know, it's more on the optimistic side. Uh, and then there are regional differentiation differences. Yes. Um, Asia is a lot more positive in that way. Um, just talk us through a little bit about the, the drivers. Uh, and by the yeah. way, China just, uh, you know, issued its 14th, um, uh, 14th five-year plan, and mm. and uh, the Prime Minister Li Keqiang was defending, saying that you know we can do six percent this year for sure, G uh, GDP growth, right? Mm -hmm. So that's domestic, and you know the large countries are looking to become more domestically oriented, uh, and and China calls it the dual you know circulation, circulation. economy. The U.S. when it puts out two trillion dollars in domestic infrastructure spending, it's probably doing the same thing. Um, you know, so um, to what extent uh, is, are the numbers that you're putting out uh, driven by maybe one or two large countries like China? And to what extent uh, is it uh, more generalized and specific in other places? So the, the biggest explainer of global trade is GDP growth. Just fundamental growth drives a lot of trade growth. So you can have no changes in trade policies, but you get economic growth. And that will, this gravity model I just described, will tell you that there'll be more trade as a result of it. Now, how you orient that trade, um, and, and, and we, we also talk about how competitive foreign goods are in the domestic market. So we have domestic trade costs and foreign trade costs, right? And this is that peripheral vision, another element of the peripheral vision that I was talking about. You can become less competitive by letting your infrastructure run down, okay? By not investing in productivity enhancing activities and those kinds of things. So another country doesn't necessarily have to subsidize anything if you're driving up your relative trade costs because you're not investing in, in, in things that help improve your efficiency and competitiveness. Um, you can indeed subsidize um, reducing those domestic trade costs and you can put barriers in place. Um, I would argue that those kinds of elements are not the biggest explainers of trade flows. So that 8% uh, trade growth is GDP recovering. It's the 16 trillion and 10 trillion that I talked fiscal policy, 10 trillion equivalent monetary policy. That's a big burst of demand growth and that's driving global trade, but it's unbalanced. It's a big demand stimulus in the United States and to some extent in Europe, sucking in imports from Asia. Asian stimulus has been much more supply side as opposed to demand side. Um, and that kind of imbalance has typically led to trade tensions. Um, and that got us the previous US administration's US-China trade conflict that saw the average tariff between the US and China go from 3% to over 21%. Um, it didn't, didn't have big impacts on over US, overall US trade balances because Trade policies like that aren't the biggest drivers of trade. It's much more these macro financial things, okay? Now they do have implications for efficiency and efficient growth. 
but the, the bottom line is um, we could see increasing trade tensions. And I think what the world needs to see is countries like the US investing in infrastructure, countries like China giving more money to consumers, letting consumers keep more of their money and encouraging them to spend. Um, so we need to see a big household demand shift in China uh, and then a supply shift in the United States. And at the same time, ensure that the savings and investment uh, ratio in the United States comes more into balance and the same in China. You could still see just as much trade, it would just be much more balanced. And that would help alleviate some of the trade tensions. Um, the dual circulation policy is something China, it's a, the next step of China's long-term plan from 2030. This is just the next step. And they're basically saying they want to supply more of their own, but do let other countries also meet some of that foreign demand. Um, and resources are going to get tight in China. Um, labor markets are going to tighten up, right? It's going to be a rapidly aging society. Um, it's going to be pretty hard for them to produce everything for their own economy that they may want. So I think they're going to need to continue to open up to trade and rely on trade. To what extent are countries using the WTO mechanism to, um, you know, to overcome some of their competitive uh, issues like China and microchips? But to what extent are some of the emerging technologies that are coming on stream? Uh, the largest uh, capitalization on, on NASDAQ is uh, companies like Tesla and, and now you know, space technology and so on. Um, the competition on, on highly competitive um, you know, industries, um, to what extent is the WTO um, embroiled in it or rather, you know, being caught up in the conversation or, or you might even be a resolution because I think China desperately wants to get that, you know, AI chip going. And, um, and, and then at the same time, the rest of the world needs rare earth and, and, and all of that. So yeah. uh, to what extent is some of those conversations taking place in, in the WTO? They're certainly part of the geopolitical background to the discussion. I have not seen discussions around uh, computer chips specifically or space or electric cars um, other than coming in through the sustainability aspect or through the digital discussion, right? Um, but setting those rules of the road, I think, are going to be pretty important. I, I started my career working on agriculture and agricultural subsidies. Um, and one of the reasons there's a WTO agreement to, to limit subsidies in agriculture is because they're counterproductive. You end up, when you get into a subsidy, subsidy race, um, you, you end up increasing the cost as the other country increases its subsidies. You compete by increasing your subsidies um, and other countries benefit there are positive spillover effects, okay, particularly for consumers, but often for other countries' producers, there are negative effects. So the idea is to try to set some rules of the road that everybody can agree to. Um, every country has its own industrial policies. You know, in the U.S., they have theirs, whether they call it an industrial policy or not, whether it's tax policy or DARPA, you know, the Defense Advanced Research Project uh, effort, right. um, that, that's an industrial policy. China has its industrial policies. Coming up with some rules of the road that keep it productive and solving global challenges, that's a good thing. But when it becomes counterproductive and just um, uh, almost unnecessary competition to see who's, whose company is going to be the one with the big margins, that's not helping the general population of your country, right? Um, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world don't make a lot of money. They have big cap. Don't confuse capitalization with generating economic value. Now, it's the market's expectation that those firms are going to generate a lot of economic value. But then from an economist, is that a competitive economic value or are there monopoly profits or, uh, you know, imperfect competition margins there? Um, very complex issues. I don't have all the answers to this, but uh, it's very complex things for society to try to navigate through. And trade plays a role in, in many aspects here, but not every. All of the things you just mentioned, capital, labor, technology, subsidy, um, you know, and, and, you know, impact and all of that, how, how all of this uh, coagulate, uh, you know, and, and show up in global trade and how that's going to be evolving. And, and I think you've given a perspective on how to think about it. 
uh, and each country makes its own decisions and comes to the table after it's made its own decisions, um, right? Yep. And, uh, and some things that are happening in the US right now, for example, the private sector and profitability and massive capitalization is in itself a form of um, you know, subsidy or you might call diversion of capital. Um, you know that is going to cost uh, uh, something. There's some a point. policy environment that has has uh, helped bring that outcome about, and it's not clear that it was an intentional uh, policy decision. Maybe it was. I, I'm not sure. I don't know. It was an opportunity to just uh, touch base with you on your report uh, and on some of the global issues shaping global trade right now. Thank you very much. Thanks, Emmanuel. Have a great day.